You're listening to Green Mountain Medicine, an original podcast series by ACP Vermont for all things internal medicine. I'm Sam. And I'm Anish. And we're your hosts. This series aims to unpack the complexity of medicine in a nuanced and evidence-based way. We invite you to relax, grab some coffee, and engage with us as we deconstruct the topics that impact our field and characterize our practice. I'm here today with Dr. Singh, infectious disease specialist, and Zipporah Perry, licensed clinical social worker here at the University of Vermont. Today we're going to talk about HIV and stigma and some advocacy issues, but first I wanted to just know a little bit more about you both. Maybe you could start with where you're from, where you did your training, how you got interested in the work you're doing today. Can we go first? Yeah. This is Zipporah, and I am from Vermont. I um, wanted nothing more than to get out of here as soon as I could. So I went to college in New York City, and I did not think I would ever be back. I went to college in New York City, and then I lived in France for a year, and then I moved to North Carolina and lived there for five years, and then decided I actually was ready to come back. So, um, And I've been back ever since. I moved back in 2004. I got my master's in social work at Smith while we were living in North Carolina because the program is summertime and then you do full-time internships. Mm -hmm. And then I started working here in January 2013. And I didn't know anything about HIV when I started working here. I've always been really interested in healthcare. And the interview was in this room, actually, and I was like, and it can't be bad if this is, if this is the view. For those who can't see, we're sitting uh, in front of a beautiful mountainscape. It's hard to imagine anyone would ever want to leave here. So right, exactly. <laughs> it was sort of a bait and switch because my office doesn't have a window. Uh, <laughs> That's how they get you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so I've been here since, since 2013, and now I am interested in HIV. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. And Dr. Singh? Yeah, I, um, I worked for a little bit of time before going to medical school, and, and the work that I was involved in was mostly in the sexual and reproductive health arena, and so it was everything from sort of understanding access to care for family planning services, abortion care services, and that kind of thing, but that sort of kind of led me into more of a path that was invested in gender justice and, and health equity, and ultimately I decided to go to medical school, and then I became very interested I remained interested in some of those areas, and then I became also interested in, in lesbian sexual health, um, which led me to want to work with somebody who was on the West Coast who was very invested in that. And then the other thing that she was very invested in was HIV prevention specifically. So I continued my training um, in Seattle um, and then became more and more immersed in sort of sexual health and HIV um, and chose to decide you know, to go into infectious diseases, my fellowship, and then took a job mostly in the HIV prevention research arena. And then other life changes happened and I, I moved to Vermont. And then I really kind of was doing a whole batch of other things while still doing some prevention research. And then finally, a job opened up here in 2018 with the Ryan White program that was needing, I guess, positions filled to help with the program. And so that's when I met Zipporah and we kind of co-lead the program that's invested in taking care of adults with HIV across Vermont and parts of surrounding areas as well. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about the state of HIV in Vermont right now and what exactly the clinic does and where people with HIV can get treatment in this state before we dive into a little bit more about stigma and understanding of the virus? Yeah, the program is mostly based out of the University of Vermont Medical Center, so here in Burlington, which is housed um, you know, within, within the hospital. Our clinic um, serves the vast majority of our patients living with HIV in Vermont and then you know, other areas, as I mentioned, from upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And then we have three satellite clinics. And, and these have been present pretty much since the inception of this program, so many years ago. One of the satellite clinics is in Brattleboro, one is in St. Johnsbury, and then one is in Rutland. And in two of those sites, we have nurse practitioners that help care for patients living with HIV in those areas. We've also been very good about establishing telehealth services, even pre-COVID, for a bunch of these patients for whom it was not necessarily reasonable or feasible to travel. We serve, you know, depending on the day and depending on how you want to look at the data, anywhere between 550 and 650 patients living with HIV across Vermont. And those are the patients that we kind of deem to be actively engaged in our care. So those are the ones that come to us, that there are um, at least some handful of patients that are followed by primary care providers, Mm -hmm. some additional ones followed by the VA and a smattering of other places. Some of our patients also go over our border and go to Dartmouth, and and then a bunch of New Hampshire residents with HIV come across the border and see us. So it's a smattering of of that. Well, I think this conversation is well-timed for the month that we're in. Um, 41 years ago this month, the CDC reported on what is now known as AIDS for the first time in the United States. We've come a long way since the early 80s, and now we have effective treatments and prophylaxis and better education and national and international days of recognition um, that attempt to reduce the stigma surrounding HIV. But from the moment HIV became something that the public was aware of, the needs of people living with HIV were dismissed, needs were unmet and ignored, and the virus was understudied and really just marred with a lot of stigma. So I'm curious to both of you, what does HIV stigma look like today? and How does it affect your patients? It's interesting. I was reflecting on that in preparation for our conversation, and it's, it's really interesting to me how some people, you know, you're describing the 80s and the beginning of the epidemic. And I think some people who have lived through that, it's almost like they went through some, some because it was such an epidemic, it was like everyone was dying, right? Mm-hmm. It, and and if, you, if you were diagnosed with HIV, then you got AIDS and then you, and then you died. And so many of those people who, for whatever reason, survived that time, now they take pride in their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. You know, they take pride mm-hmm. in being part of, this community that has survived so much and you know there there's people are guilty feel guilty too like why did I survive why did I survive and literally everyone I knew you know all of my partners and former partners and friends died Um, but they have this it's it's almost it's like a part of their identity that they really strongly that they feel proud of you know it's it's like part of you know what makes me who I am And then there are people who it's this deep, dark, heavy secret that they just carry around with them. And it's, it looks like anything on the spectrum from just no one in my life 
knows this thing about me. Mm. You know, I've been living with this for 30 years and my kids don't know and my mm. parents don't know and my, you know, none of my friends know, which wouldn't be a problem. You know, that's, that's one of the things we talk about is like, you don't have to tell anybody you don't want to, but it becomes a problem when it still feels like this huge part of you in the same way that those, mm -hmm. you know, other people who take pride in it, it feels like this huge part of you, but it's like a shameful part that you mm -hmm. can never reveal to anyone. And, you know, just from a mental health perspective, we know that that's, that's going to have an effect, right? If it, it might be long-term, the stress of that, it, a lot of it looks like social isolation. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can't tell someone, then you're going to, you're going to maybe not, you know, not, have friends and not, you know, certainly not have sex partners, although there are people who have partners and don't tell them. But so I think it, yeah, it's, it's hard, it's hard to see that. And when people just feel like there is absolutely no way that I could ever tell anyone mm -hmm. because, and maybe it's, you know, it's not just that it's in their head. It's because they have told people and those people have been absolutely not supportive you know, they have, right. the people that they have, unfortunately, have told have reacted just the way they always feared that they would right. react. And, and I think for some people, I was just on the phone with <clears throat> a community partner talking about um, a shared patient who you cared for, one of the, who was cared for by primary care, and then um, his primary care had to discharge him from practice. And she was saying he can't even say HIV. He just refers to it as my situation. So he can't even say the words. He just says, well, you know, the medicines I have to take because of my situation. Mm -hmm. And he has a whole host of other other things going on. Um, so I don't want to say it's just about HIV stigma, but he's not doing well. You right. know, he's, right. he's not. He's got substance abuse and mm -hmm. right. all kinds of stuff. So. It's interesting, I mean, depending on the community, right, you know, it's it's still really hard to be gay in rural America, mm -hmm. right? And so that stigma alone permeates in so many of the communities that we take care of. Mm -hmm. um, and then also what you alluded to is people who have families and, you know, other life stories and profiles, right? So it's a completely different experience to be a heterosexual woman mm -hmm. with HIV or uh, an immigrant with HIV coming mm -hmm. to rural America mm -hmm. or heterosexual men. So, you know, and, and, and so when it comes to trying to identify those narratives that were powerful of some of the strongest of our survivors, right, mm -hmm. that came out of the 80s and the 90s and are some of our most vocal people, mm -hmm. Zipporah has started a patient advocacy group which, you know, um, people meet via Zoom um, every few months. And so and there's, there are opportunities for people to share their stories and their struggles and give us some input about how we can optimize our care. But a lot of those people are exactly who you described, mm -hmm. right? The ones who are strong and heroic and this, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out there and tell people who I am and share my life story. And it would be amazing to get some of our quieter folks mm -hmm. to join those groups mm -hmm. um, or to have separate groups for women or, mm -hmm. um, or as I said, immigrants or, you know, persons of color and transgender communities where, you know, the, the layers of stigma are mm -hmm. ones that we're having a hard time unravel and know how to help them navigate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, that's really interesting. I grew up right outside of San Francisco and mm -hmm. so I am 
fortunate in that this has always been something that's kind of been top of mind and a lot of the conversation around HIV and AIDS I grew up with are these people who are very proud that they mm -hmm. um, are, you know, men who have sex with men or mm. identify as gay and they either survived or have, they're just very outspoken advocates and I, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about being in Vermont where it's rural America. It's very different from San Francisco already mm -hmm. with that population and we have a lot of refugee populations mm -hmm. here and it's a different, it's a different lived experience for different groups. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, what what would you say the stigma kind of looks like in like a refugee population here or like a younger group of people who are diagnosed with HIV versus those, these older people who've maybe lived with it for a long time? Like what is it how do you have to treat these populations differently and what is what does it look like for you both? I think some of it, you know, we, we definitely navigated with again, um, people Ha you know, having discomfort talking about it, mm -hmm. you know, and they're very willing to come for care mm -hmm. and they're, they're actually pretty comfortable taking medication for HIV, um, but naming it mm -hmm. and sharing it with core members of their household may be an entirely different topic. Mm -hmm. And, and sometimes that's fine, you know, and we, we work around that and we're very careful and our EPIC system is able to say things like don't you know, mm -hmm. share diagnosis with someone else who answers the phone or whatever it is. But that's probably some of the hardest with, I would say, some of our immigrant mm -hmm. and some of our mm -hmm. racial minority populations. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. Yeah. I feel like we have a cohort of women, heterosexual women, who have immigrated here from African countries, right. who the idea of sharing it sharing their HIV status with anyone other than their partner mm -hmm. is just an absolute no-go. Right, right. And I, you know, so there have been times where they're like in adjacent exam rooms <sighs> and I just, <laughs> you know, I want to, I, I just want them to know. And I've said to people, you know, what if there were, you know, you know that you are not the only person living with HIV in Vermont and you're not even the only woman and you're not even the only immigrant you know, would you ever want to talk to one other person or, or would you ever be willing to talk to someone else? Right, right. Um, and you know, some of them sort of at least make a show of considering it. And ultimately the answer is absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we could like write each other notes and like slip them under the door, but the, you know, being face to face. Yeah. It's right. Right. And sometimes I step back and I think, is this our Western model mm -hmm. of medicine, right? Of right. like, you're supposed to be very comfortable, which means <laughs> right. you should be vocal and right. join these groups and talk about it. And, you know, and there are probably a lot of other things that we don't know and understand about all of these cultures, separate cultures, mm -hmm. about how they deal with any diagnosis right. or... Um, other things that maybe they're experiencing, like depression or intimate partner violence or other things. And so I think our role collectively is to just keep saying, anytime, and this is what Zipporah does, is she, you know, she just periodically always comes into the room and says, anytime you want to have, you want my help telling your kids mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. telling any member of your community, let me know. You know? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's where you have to leave it. Right. Yeah. Plant those seeds mm -hmm. and then see. Yeah. But even, you know, that I'm thinking about one couple and both both um, members of the couple are are positive. 
and they come from Nepal. Mm -hmm. And I've known them for years now because they've been coming for years. And they, they're in that boat of like, they don't want to name it. They don't want, mm -hmm. they only will have one interpreter, you know, mm -hmm. and they, you know, it's, they're very, um, they're very private and, and ashamed of their diagnosis. And we were talking about something about food. I think I was, I don't know why it came up because I like food probably. <laughs> <laughs> and I said something like, well, if, you know, if you ever want to bring me dumplings, you certainly could. <laughs> and we laughed. And then uh, the woman said, wait, would you actually eat dumplings mm -hmm. that I made? And I was like, yeah. And I didn't even, at that point, I was like, well, yeah, of course I would. And then I realized right. that she, and I think then she said, even though we have, you know, whatever, some version of our situation. And I was like, absolutely. Right. Um, so they brought dumplings. <laughs> I think I shared some with you. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I was going to ask if you all encounter persistent misconceptions about either viral spread or yeah. like what, what is what 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 do you see both in your patients and then I guess maybe yeah. in the community at large. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. So one of the things that we have learned and has been um, disseminated out of the Centers for Disease Control and like very very you know global level awareness building is U equals U, right? Mm -hmm. So undetectable as untransmissible, and yet I will field people living with HIV who are highly educated, mm -hmm. who still are unsure of, of what to do with that, you know, and, and, and I think because the world of sexual health has been so, you know, invested in, well, there's always going to be, and we use terms like risk, mm -hmm. you know, or you could pass this on, or, you know, and be careful, and, you know, it's taken us decades and I'm sure, and we're not even really there about not using terminology like that, and mm -hmm. and and, and, um, and you know, sort of investing um, a new, modern, evolved way of talking about it. But just talking to patients about, you know, when they're wanting to be in a relationship, and that's that's a whole other thing. Is that we have a lot of patients living with HIV who are not having sex, mm -hmm. you know. And some of it comes from the trauma that sex is what equaled HIV in 1987 or 1989 or whatever it was that was their experience. And so when, when we try to talk to them about, so, you know, are you seeing anyone? Are you interested in anyone? There's a lot of, you know, okay, I don't, I don't know how to do this because, you know, this is what it meant. And so that's, that's one point that I think is really, is really a challenge of, you know, trying to get the message out that we have come much further and emphasize that in our care. Yeah. And trying to, to walk that line of, like you said a little bit ago about stepping back, that we aren't trying to, like, if you don't want to have sex, you don't have to have sex. Right. But if you want to and you're not because, you know, you're afraid of passing this on to someone else, then, then let's talk about that. Yeah. yeah. I like your mention, too, about how important words are in terminology. I think that was something that was definitely ignored in at least medical training for a long time, and now I feel like to be in med school now, and there's a lot of emphasis based on the way we say things. And, Correct. Um, and you still see it with some doctors, some, you know, some healthcare professionals um, will still say things in such a way that I think continue to perpetuate this like fear-based mm -hmm. you know response from patients but it's I think it's lessening which is good to see right similarly how do you build trust with a population who's been historically mistreated by 
the government and also mm-hmm. healthcare workers throughout time. Like there is, I think, a level of generational trauma, even if they weren't mistreated. You've heard stories of people being mistreated, and how do you how do you build trust with people like this? You tackle that one. <laughs> <laughs> you are. I mean, I think you know. There's a lot of talk now about trauma informed care, mm. which I think we could we could always do better on, but I think what it boils down to is really just treating people like human beings, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of people are come from, have many different identities that are historically marginalized, mm-hmm. you know, or just make it hard to, to move around in this world, like being poor, you know, a lot of people are just struggling financially, and it's really hard to you know, to live here now when you don't have enough money and you have to make choices between you know, food and rent and even cigarettes, you know, but so I think it's, it's sort of approaching UVM Medical Center talks a lot about patient centered care. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the true embodiment of that is just approaching people with a, with an openness and a, like a sense of curiosity that, okay, I, I know something about, about HIV or I know something about substance use or I know something about whatever it is that you're coming in with but also what is it like for you Mm -hmm. I think that that's that's what I try to do and I and I think that most of our providers try to do that too is let me hear from you right you know what's happening one of the things that that's helpful and core to what Zephora just mentioned is sort of meeting people where they are Mm -hmm. and that may mean physically going to where they are, you know, and we've done things like see people in hotel rooms because that's where they're housed right now. You've met people on a park bench downtown, you know, Um, you know, spending time, you know, being in touch with other care providers, you know, Mm -hmm. so some people may have a primary care provider, some people may have, you know, someone who's providing them Suboxone and, you know, and just, it's often sort of a network-based approach. And, and that may be exactly what, what the patient wants, you know, and desires, um, but, you know, constantly, constantly engaging on many levels with them, mm-hmm. you know. We're, we're pretty forgiving about other things, like people who, you know, don't show up for visit, you know. Um, some, some other primary care practices may dismiss people who don't show up after a certain amount of time mm-hmm. or, you know, or a certain number of times, or people may show up 20 minutes late mm-hmm. or... You know, all the things that can be some of the challenges of, you know, when they come in here and engage with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, we talk about that with clinic staff, too, is, you know, this person who's no-showed six appointments in a row, and the question is always, what do we do with this person? And so we try, you know, we try to go where they are or, but really I think what, what we talk about as a clinic staff is when they do call, you know, it might be that for the seventh time they will show up. Mm-hmm. And so we can't, you know, when mm-hmm. they do call, we can't be like, okay, fine, we'll put yeah. you in, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm really glad you called. Right. We've yeah. been worried about you. It's okay mm-hmm. to say we've been worried about you because right. often we have. Right. Um, when do you want to come in? Right. What's your, what do you find is one of the biggest challenges in doing the work that you both do? I think one of the things... This is, this is a positive and a negative, but, you know, the world of HIV has not been static, right? It's, there's so much constant evolution. So you had 
you know, drug discovery sort of that started in 1987, you know, and has continued to span, you know, and every few years or every several months, we move, you know, further, faster in what we're able to offer patients. And so part of that is keeping up with it, you know, um, and that can be hard, which has also, and, and the drug development part of it has paralleled with patients living longer with HIV, right? And so we have some, clinically, some of my hardest ones are that what we call heavily treatment experienced mm -hmm. um, ones. And so the ones diagnosed in the late 80s or 90s that saw AZT monotherapy for some length of time and then graduated to something better. Um, and then now, if they happen to have any resistance challenges, that can be tough. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, is the hardest part for me, is, is managing some of the most heavily treatment-experienced patients and, and knowing how to keep them virally suppressed or even get them there, mm -hmm. you know. And, um, and, and, and it can be lots of challenges. There may be, there may be, there may be an option that we can offer here in Burlington that would require an IV infusion every two weeks, but somehow we'd have to get transportation arranged or, you know, other barriers like that that include insurance and accident <coughs> care and all this kind of stuff. So that's, I think for me, from a clinical perspective, mm -hmm. what I, what I, what sort of keeps me up at night yeah. sometimes. We're lucky to be in Vermont too, where there's a lot of good social supports for all that stuff right. too. I right. imagine it's much harder elsewhere, but yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think people know that and arrive mm -hmm. here from mm -hmm. other places with their HIV because they know that they're going to have better care than yeah. the place they're coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one of the reasons that my partner is also a social worker and practicing social work in North Carolina is a much different mm -hmm. landscape than it is here. I mean, I can say very concretely to people, we can definitely get you your medicine for free and we can... You, you can get your blood work and you don't have to worry about how much that costs. Um, I don't know about biggest challenge. I think it's probably, I don't know if it's HIV specific. I think it's, you know, people, you know, the world right now is so mm -hmm. unstable mm -hmm. and yeah. people um, who don't have stable housing mm -hmm. or people who don't have enough money to live on or people who are dealing with really serious substance use and, you know, those those are the people that keep me up at night. Is like, are we going to hear that this person died of an overdose? Right. Yeah. Um, Primary care also offering people. Yeah. Um, when when we live in a healthcare landscape that doesn't have availability in primary care, and so right. you know, lots of us try to do as much of it as we can, but that can be hard. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, add if we if we you know tell patients you can come here only for your HIV, mm -hmm. but then you've got to find someone else for your diabetes, <laughs> and you, you had a heart attack, so you've got to go, you know, and all these things, and so that, that can be adding burden to some of our patients. Mm -hmm. yeah. Logistically, it's important. Do you meet with patients every visit? Depends on the person. Okay. <laughs> Depends on the person. Some people, I'm like, who's that person again? You know, because I haven't seen them in years, because okay. they just come in every six months and see the doctor, and they have no issues. Mm -hmm. And then some people, I have one person right now who for the last two weeks I've spoken to every day because mm -hmm. they're in, you know, early recovery from meth use. So no, I don't necessarily. I, I'm here and I'm available Tuesday through Friday. And so 
providers will sometimes mm-hmm. come out and say, can you see this person? And, you know, could, because they need a dentist, which somehow <laughs> I've become the dental liaison. <laughs> Not in dumplings, I think. Not in dumplings, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, I also dole out gas cards and food cards. So, you know, that, I mean, that's another thing that when we first started doing, we we had gas cards, I guess, but food cards we never had before. Mm -hmm. And we first started doing it probably, I don't know how many years ago, because we had a little more money from the Department of Health and we were trying this sort of contingency management. Like, okay, if we could give people, if they got a a blood draw, we'll give you $10. Mm -hmm. And if you achieve an undetectable viral load, we'll give you this much money. You know, we sort of did that for a year. We didn't really measure it. But what we found was, I just think it's always good to be able to offer someone a food card. I mean, if I got offered a food card when I went to my doctor, I would be like, sweet, I'm going to get a food card today. (laughs) And it's just another way to to say, like, we know that, you know, you're here for your HIV care, but we're called the Comprehensive Care Clinic, you know, for a reason. Like, we know that everything else in your life affects Mm -hmm. your HIV and how you're able to manage it. And being able to hand out food cards is a nice, nice thing. So one thing I wanted to ask about is HIV is something that I think of when I think of advocates um, throughout history really being the ones to push the government basically to make some changes and push scientists to create drugs. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of other diseases that have kind of needed the help of advocacy, but HIV is the one to me that I am most familiar with. And we really have, I think, advocacy groups to thank for all of the strides we've made in HIV care. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the patient advocates you work with now and what their role is in the clinic? And Yeah, and they're the ones, it's really inspirational to hear from them and, you know, to watch all of those movies about that time when, when it was really, you know, groups of people, grassroots movements who were saying, like, to Dr. Fauci, you know, sort of moving things forward. And I think we had a meeting that I think you were at when COVID was, you know, at its height Mm -hmm. and everyone in that group was like feeling, it felt really familiar to them. Mm -hmm. Like this feels Mm -hmm. a lot like the beginning of the, we don't know how people are getting it. Yeah. 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 And sort of, you know, putting it on like came from China and you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) But they're, they really want to, they want to be speaking out. And I think one of the challenges with that is we haven't found a venue for that. What, you know, what's the, you know, they want to maybe host a panel for a community medical school or, mm. you know, even just it's the bureaucracy of UVM Medical Center. Like I've been trying to work with communications to get them in a newsletter so we could have a newsletter where that's the focus and we sort of interview people and I don't know, it's in some work queue somewhere. <laughs> but they've been great in terms of, you know, sometimes Davika will say like, Oh, can you get their thoughts on this this particular thing, like injectable therapy? Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. you know, we talked we talked with them and invited one of them to our um, ID conference to talk about language. You know, mm-hmm. as we talk about mm-hmm. how are we assessing for sexual risk or not calling it risk, but how are we assessing mm-hmm. how are we assessing this? What are the words that that you know would feel okay to you? that kind of thing they've been really helpful it's been an interesting it's still an evolving process because I think some people for some people it's a it almost would be nice if it were a support group Mm -hmm. and people really want to use it that way and some people just want to be there because they feel like they want to give back somehow Um, 
but there's there's a core group of people who right now is mostly gay men white white, yeah yeah. and I think one of our things that we talk about periodically is how do we expand the voices that are being heard through this advisory group right Um, And some of the people are like, let's march in the streets and say, I'm HIV positive, you know, and some people definitely don't want to do that, but they would be very open to being one-on-one, you know, someone who's newly diagnosed, who wonders how their life could go on, you know, they're available for that. Yeah, I would love to see sort of, you know, some of these folks that already engage with us, you know, you know, share their stories to Mm -hmm. encourage providers to offer more prep. Right, mm-hmm. HIV prep is so available, so easy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are new kinds of prep, you know, and you know, just trying to get more of even just local advocacy and changes. With, with you know, you mentioned one of them, you know, sharing with us how language matters mm-hmm. and how we should be adjusting how we um, the terminology we use. Mm-hmm. But that you know, having him go to individual clinics mm-hmm. or doing a Zoom or echo session or whatever it is, but there could be many, many local opportunities if we, if we just knew how to launch them. Yeah, and had had a little more time to step yeah. back from the day-to-day stuff yeah. to do that. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And I think, and I don't know that this is unique to, you know, HIV, but I think healthcare, as, as a social worker, I think what I find is that communication is not always there. You know, mm-hmm. the communication between providers and patients, and and I think that's a function of, you know, the way our system is set up. But recently I went into someone's room who was in the hospital, mm-hmm. and, you know, they had, like, MRSA, or one of those things so that you have to gown up. Mm-hmm. And But they thought that it was because they were HIV positive. You know, they just didn't know why that was and they assumed that that's why it was that so the fact that they still they thought that still that would be a reason that people would have to put on gown and gloves to enter their room is pretty telling how do you see advances in science contributing to decreased stigma the way i got acquainted with you dr singh was because i went to an id conference and Mm -hmm. he was talking about cabinuba Mm -hmm. the first injectable Mm -hmm. once monthly Mm -hmm. full hiv treatment which seemed amazing and i didn't know much about it and i heard a patient advocate speaking about his experience with it and how transformative it could be to now just have a drug in one formulation once a month right Um, so how could that do you think decrease yeah no i mean i think there have been so many meaningful biomedical advances in hiv care and so you have injectable therapy you have um longer term injections that Mm -hmm. are being um trialed so every six months or every 12 months there's an implant that is being worked on and i think providing the array of choices and the way we think about it for, you know, contraception, you know, mm-hmm. you know, here is a pill or here is an implant, here is a ring, here is a, you know, any number of different things for both prevention and for treatment, you know, and I think both paths are being worked on by, um, by um, different clinical researchers. And it's interesting, going back to sort of, you know, the care that we provide, I think for a lot of individuals with HIV, it may not seem like a big deal for us to say, just take this one pill every day, Mm -hmm. right? You know, but for many of them, it's the one reminder every morning Mm -hmm. or every night, you know, um, 
that I have HIV. And for people that have roommates or family members, you have to hide the pills, to, you know, all of these things. So I, I think that's the most meaningful thing is to have injectable therapy that people can do every two months and hopefully at some point every six to 12 months that eliminates that daily reminder and just, just allows people to be you know, more free form in how they navigate their disease. I think in general with stigma, the stigma around HIV comes from, you know, from the old, you know, the the bad old days when everyone was getting it and it felt like this mysterious thing and it was, people were dying from it. But I also think it it arises from the fact that a lot of people get it through sexual contact Mm -hmm. and just, we don't talk about sex. You know, I think there's more of a movement um, recently in the sort of sex positive movement, but I just think that, you know, you, you came to this from a sexual health lens. And I think that that's such an important thing Mm, that we don't, you know, from as, as kids and, you know, Mm -hmm. I see, I see college students who wander in here for a rapid HIV test. And, and I, you know, I ask them questions and they first like blush and are like, um, (laughs) but it's, it also is, you can also tell that it's the first time that they've had the space to talk to someone about that, you know, so sometimes they're just like, don't, you know, I'm going to answer your questions and then I'm out. But sometimes, you know, 20 minutes for the test to work and they'll be like, can I just, can I just ask you a quick question about, you know, and it's, it's things that, who do you ask those questions to, you know, as a, as a 19 year old who's living on their own and they come in for an HIV test and they're terrified that they have, they have HIV because, you know, someone performed oral sex on them. Right. So even right. just being able to say, you know, to talk about it and yeah. talk about what the, I don't know what to do about that. I, I guess that's ask, a, how do you see yeah. getting better? <laughs> I've heard some podcasts with some amazing sex educators. Yeah, so I yeah, feel yeah. like that's the, yeah. you know, and they're talking about how to talk to kids about it because it's, it's like even the absence of talking about it sends a message that it's not something that we're supposed to talk mm-hmm. about. Right. So probably that means it's not something we're supposed to do. Right. And if you do it, of course, it's behind closed doors. And so it just leads to this whole thing that by the time you get to be a college student or a young adult, right. there's so much baggage associated right. with it. I feel like it's another opportunity for some of our patients to go into schools, right? Yeah. You know, and actually maybe high school, you know, whatever it is to just open it up, have some clear language about here's what we're talking about when we're talking about sex. And right. Actually remove the teachers from the room and let these yeah. folks go in <laughs> yes. and, um, and, and take over. Yeah, it's always needed earlier point. than what people think. Like right. they'll start mm-hmm. talking about it maybe in like college, and it's right. too late by that point. Like right. The, the, the baggage right. is already there. The right. baggage is there. Yeah. yeah. We did go once. I went with one of our patient advisors to um, Edmonds Middle School, pre-pandemic, of course. And so good. We went. We talked to eighth graders, and they were super engaged, and they had lots of great questions, mm-hmm. and they knew a lot of stuff. But they also were asking questions like, "My aunt's friend, I think, has HIV," you know, and wanting to know about that. Mm-hmm. And I just think that having forums to answer those questions where people can feel comfortable, whether that's about me or about someone that they know, that's really important and valuable. That's it for today on Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Anish Single. And I'm Sam Schutz. And thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed our discussion, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACP underscore Vermont for more podcast updates.